We are preaching through uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians with us. We've been going through 2 Corinthians now for um, maybe 10 weeks or so, something like that. Um, And we are in chapter 7. So uh, chapter 7, starting at verse 2. And we're just going through the book, um, basically, you know, 10, 15 verses at a time. Uh, So we're going to actually read the text out loud. So if you would, if you're able to stand with me, uh, we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 2 through 16, 2 through 16. Um, After I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. So as you say, thanks be to God, of course, you're thanking the Lord that he'd be so kind to give us his word. But more than that, let that be for you the time where you think in your head, okay, God, all the things that you show me, all the things that you teach me today in the Word, I want to obey them. I want to I hear them, I want to receive them, and I want to obey them. So starting at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for... Um, I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides your own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And this affection for you is even greater as he remembers, as he remembers the obedience of you, all, of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, I, uh, I pray for your help this morning as we look at a seemingly kind of tough text to follow and understand. Um, I pray that you would fill me with the Spirit and help me teach it well, not just the, the ABC, run verse by verse, kind of run through it, but the big picture of, of everything that Paul's trying to do and everything that you have, by the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit, put in Paul's heart for the Corinthians to understand and therefore for us to understand. And so I, uh, I pray for your help this morning. Um, as we look into this pastor's heart for this church, I pray that we would see uh, that this is what the pastors today should feel and, and have for the church, but also what we all should feel and have for each other. We, uh, we love you, and we praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and just to kind of let you know what's going on, um, throughout this chapter, um, really the first seven chapters, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians because there has been a little bit of a dispute between them. So we're in 2 Corinthians, but this is really the fourth letter that was written. 1 Corinthians was the second letter. So there was the first letter we don't have, and then the second letter, which is 1 Corinthians. The third letter, which we don't have, but he just referenced it as we were looking at this. You can see as he's writing when he said um, uh, in verse 8, For if I made 
For, if I, uh, for even if I made you grieve you with my letter, that's the third letter, which we don't have. Um, and then we have the fourth letter, which is 2 Corinthians. That third letter, which we don't have, is also known as the severe letter. And this severe letter that he wrote was because the Corinthian church had, had after Paul had planted it, these people came in and they said a lot of wrong things about Paul. And the Corinthian church started believing it. And Paul was very upset because they had basically... Um, maligned Paul and even changed kind of some of the gospel. And so Paul wrote this letter, this severe letter to them, telling them those people that came in are wrong and they need to repent. And all of you who have maligned my character, who have not who understand who I am, you all also need to repent of the maliciousness that you have had against me. And so Paul wrote this and he was very nervous about it. He, he, he wanted the relationship between the Corinthian church and him to be restored. And he knew by writing it, it was going to put some friction between them. Just imagine yourself if you've had um, kind of a, a, a dispute between somebody. You know the next time you see them, you're like, oh, it's going to be awkward. It's going to be awkward. I don't really know what to do here. And so Paul knew that it was going to be awkward. And so before he saw him face to face, he wrote this letter to him trying to say, listen, you need to repent. You need for things to get right. Uh, you need to stop believing these false things. And then he wrote letter four, which is what we have. And he sent this as well to him saying, I'm going to see you face to face. I'm hoping that the first letter didn't bother you. But I'm hoping this next letter also makes it a little bit easier for us. So when we finally see each other face to face, that things aren't as bad and as awkward as they are because you believe these false apostles, because you've not understood the gospel completely. And so that's where we are as we're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Is he's referencing that severe letter where, I mean, he, he really apparently kind of gave it to him. Um, and so as we're looking at 2 Corinthians, it's 13 whole chapters. Uh, the, the layout of it for us is the first seven chapters is Paul's talking about the situation that had taken place where they need to reconcile, how reconciliation can happen. He talked about the gospel. And for the first seven chapters, he's trying to help them see, I'm Paul, an apostle. Those guys that came in, they're no one. And so he's, he's propping up his apostolic position or p- person as an apostle, talking about reconciliation. He's doing all that in the first seven chapters. And so what we are doing right now is we're finishing those first seven chapters, and we're finishing Paul f- um, in that whole kind of first seven chapters, helping them understand who he is and th- their need to reconcile. When we get to chapters 8 and 9, he's going to talk about their need for generosity. And in chapters 10 through 13, he's got some closing kind of things that he's looking at. So what we're doing here, this is really kind of an amazing part of this text in chapter 7 that we're looking at because um, in this particular text that we just read, chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, unlike really any other text in Scripture, in all of Scripture, we're seeing this open window to the heartache that a pastor has in regard to his church whenever, he, they've, been, whenever they've wronged him. This, if, if, you, if you were able to follow it, because it is tough, I know, when, we're, when you're reading it. Um, they, had, they had given Paul a, a, a high level of heartache because of how they had hurt him. And, and he's opened up a little bit about it. Um, through the first six chapters. But in this particular chapter, chapter 7, he's really kind of opening up the window to his heart and saying, this is almost everything that's happened with me and how, and how I feel about the way this whole thing's gone down and how you've hurt me as a pastor. Uh, and so that's what we're going to look at today is uh, the, the window to Paul's heart. Now, in the ESV, um, the elect standard version, I'm just kidding, it's the English standard version. So in ESV, the title says Paul's joy. I don't know if what your title, what some of you might be u- using the NASB or uh, the NIV or whatever, but it says Paul's joy. And that title, it's a nice sentiment. It's not exactly accurate. It's, not exa- it's, it's the positive spin on what's happening. So it's not entirely accurate. The section shows also, as I just said, a high level of anguish and joy that Paul experienced because of being a pastor. So um, no other church uh, that Paul planted that we know of, as we read Scripture, gave Paul the pastor the grief like the Corinthians did, the, the heartache that he felt. So a better title, instead of just Paul's joy, would be Paul's anguish and joy. That's, that's more accurate. It's, it's a holistic kind of thing, but that doesn't have the, the same ring to it as Paul's joy, right? It's a little sad. Um, but the reason why is this. So... Um, 
let me, let me read from the book of Acts here. You don't need to turn. Now, this is Paul dealing with another group of elders. This is Paul talking to the Ephesian elders. But knowing that he feels this way, in general, helps us understand why he felt such pain about the Corinthians. So, this is in the book of Acts. He didn't write Acts. Luke wrote Acts. But uh, as, he's, as he's traveling, uh, he's going back to Jerusalem. He stops uh, at this place called Miletus, and he calls the Ephesian elders to come down to him, and he's going to give these Ephesian elders this warning. He's like, listen, Ephesian elders, uh, here's what can happen to you as pastors. Whenever I left, he planted a church in Ephesus, and whenever he left, he appointed those elders, and he calls them down, and he gives them this kind of last word of advice. He'll never see them again, and he sends them back up to Ephesus to go be pastors forever, uh, and he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to do more things, and he tells the Ephesian elders this. Now, we need to know this isn't just Ephesian-specific. This is how Paul knows all churches go. All churches go this way. And so, in general, this is what he says. Pay careful attention to yourself. So this is Paul talking to those Ephesian elders, and he's saying, you need to watch it because this is what happens for pastors. And the same thing's kind of what happened in Corinth. But this is what he says. Pay careful attention to, to yourselves and to all the flock. So, pastors, you need to watch yourself you're going to mess up all the time, and you need the gospel, but you also need to watch the people that God's put you over and shepherd them well. And here's why. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or, or pastors or elders or however you want to say it, to care for the church which Jesus Christ obtained for, with his blood. So it's not your church, pastor. Jesus bought this church with his blood, and you are the overseer. You're the under-shepherd of Jesus, and your job is just to care for him, to be there for him. But you've got to watch out. And here's why. Here's what he says, verse 29. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That, that sounds terrible, right? People are going to come into the church. They won't care about the people. They just want to destroy the people. And you're like, well, who, where are they going to come from? I want to know so that I can make sure that I stop them. And here's, here's the trick that Paul is making sure that he knows about. Fierce wolves are going to come in. And then he says, verse 30, this is Acts chapter 20. And from your, among your own selves, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. So it's not like they're going to come necessarily from out, but even from within, they're going to rise up and cause these problems. And so that's what happened in Corinth. So Paul knows this happens, and that's what's happened in Corinth. Within Corinth, this came up and started to happen. So this is because in pastoral ministry, um, you have to be aware knowing that this is going to happen. And so um, Paul is writing in this particular... Now, every text has its own kind of feel. Every text has what it's about. This, some texts can be about reconciliation, how that happens. Some texts can be about comfort and how we give comfort. Some texts can just be about the New Testament covenant. This particular text is really... It, it would be more suited if I was preaching this at a seminary, right? All of you are going to be pastors one day, and so all of you who are going to be pastors, you need to know this is what you need to be like as a pastor. But we're preaching through the Bible, and this is the next text, and so you're getting it. Um, so pretend, as you hear this, if you're going to be a pastor, pretend like, okay, this is what I need, not pretend, but take this and say, this is what I need to be as a pastor. Most people won't be pastors. So you're like, well, how do, I, how, do I, how do I listen to this? It's not to me, really. Well, here's how you listen to this. Um, you still are called as a Christian to care for people. You still, are, as a Christian, are called to, to um, in some level, whether it's for children or people in your community group, you're, you're called to look over them, love them, care for them, shepherd them in some way, um, lead them to Christ, disciple them in the faith. So as you hear these things, hear these things in such a way that because you're a Christian, you're supposed to do these things. So um, look at verse 2, and then we're going we're gonna, to uh, springboard from there. I'm going to give you the outline, some of the outline from the beginning. It says, make room in your hearts for us. See the first, first words there in verse 2? This is what Paul's trying to tell them. Like, so he's saying, I want you to make room in your heart for me. This is a way of saying, I want you to love me. I want you to love your pastor. And as pastors, we're supposed to do the same thing for you. We're supposed to, as it says, um, you are in our hearts. That's what it says in verse 2. He's already said, 
um, in verse, chapter 6, verse 11, that we, our heart is wide open for you. And he tells them in verse 13 that you need to widen your heart. So the, this widen our heart language is saying increase a deep love for each other. Pastors should have a deep love for the people. People should have a deep love for the pastors. And so um, go back to the title. So no, no, title. So a pastor, this, this text is about a pastor's heart for the church, and he's saying that we all need to widen our heart. So there's really three kind of phases to this text, and you can, I'm going to go ahead and put up all three of them. So go ahead. And, so there it is. So as we're looking at a pastor's heart, Paul's heart for his church, this, this text outlines itself in three different, in three different sections. First, we're going to see the pastor's love for the church. That's in verses 2 through 4. Now, I know I've got Roman numeral 1, 2, and 3. You need to know Roman number 1 and 2 and 3 all have subsections. So make sure you leave room. You might want to space out 1 and then 2 and then 3. If you put them all together, you're going to be so frustrated later whenever you're trying to write in A, B, and C underneath 1, and you're going to have room. So space it out. But in this section, you're going to see a pastor's love for the church. You're also going to see a pastor's ministry to the church, and then you're going to, in the last part, you're going to see the pastor's message to the church. So he loves the church. He has a deep love for them. We're going to see how he loves them. He has a ministry to them, the things that he's called to do, but also he has a message, which I bet you can guess what it is. It's the gospel. Good. You got it. So um, here, though, as I said, more than any other text, we're going to see some of the deepest levels of hurt that Paul experienced from the Corinthian church. And I want to be sure exactly what we're talking about when we say hurt for Paul, because Paul experienced all kinds of hurts um, from churches. So let's be clear what I think and what I think in the text is the deepest hurt Paul experienced. Um, You might think that the hurt is the lies and slander that happened to him. These other false apostles came in And they really kind of down-talked who Paul was. And they lied against him and they slandered against him. And you could could think to yourself, that's got to be the hurt that Paul really is talking about here. That people would come in and lie about him and slander him. That's got to just be devastating to him. Um, I, too, have sat across the table and had conversations with people and heard the, the, the slander that had happened to me, the gross kind of lies that had happened to me. But I don't think that as a pastor you develop thick skin on that. You just realize... That's just going to happen. And so I don't think that that's what's happening here. I don't, I don't, that of course hurts, but you get used to it because that's just part of being a pastor. I don't think that that's the deepest hurt that Paul's talking about that he's feeling here. Instead, there's actually something that's even worse. The deep pain, the deepest pain that pastors experience is not the lies and slander against them. Instead, the deepest pain that pastors feel is whenever they realize that there are people in the church that aren't going to persevere to the end. That's what bothers them. That's why Paul, when he called those Ephesians elders over, and he said, there's going to be fierce wolves that will rise up among yourself. How? How does that happen? That's what is the worst for him. When he sees there's going to be people that will not fight the good fight of faith all the way to the end, and they're going to leave the faith. That's what hurts pastors' hearts the most is that people actually leave. The fierce wolves in Acts 20 are going to persuade weak sheep to fall away from the faith. And when a pastor sees someone that's not going to persevere to the end, but instead they're going to fall away, they're going to forsake the gospel, they're going to forsake the clear teachings of Scripture, they're going to move over to paganism or just a false Christ that they create for themselves, that's the most painful part of being a pastor, is seeing people walk away. I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it myself. Um, I've been in ministry for over 20 years now, and I've seen it. And this is what Paul's fear is. He was fearful that the Corinthians were not going to repent of their sin. That severe letter that he sent when he said, I sent it to you, and it, I was nervous about it because my, I was, my fear was is that you weren't going to repent. You were going to just say, ah, forget this Christ-following thing. I don't want to do it anymore. You weren't going to repent. And so he was fearful that that was going to happen. And he was fearful that the severe letter wasn't going to work. And so here we're going to see, unlike most texts of scriptures, in this particular text, a window into deep heartache of a pastor. Deep heartache. Now, um, whenever you came in on that table, uh, maybe you grabbed one of these. I don't know if you did or not. But this is three different uh, commentators 
uh, their theological outline on this text. You know, you can, you can see that Paul has a command to repent disposition, or he gets reports from Titus, and his effects of the severe letter. And this is helpful, um, but this is not my outline. I have a different outline in the way that I see this text. Uh, these, these are helpful. Uh, and so if you want to see a, a theological outline of, of what this is, that's what's going on in this text. But I'm, I'm doing a sermon outline, which is this. You see a pastor's love for the church, a pastor's ministry to the church, and the pastor's message to the church. The first thing that we see here is the pastor's love for the church. You can go down one slide. Pastor's love for the church. Look at verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. And then he says um, in verse 3, you are in our hearts. As we've already said over in 6.11, he said, our hearts are wide open for you. And in 6.13, widen your hearts for us. And so Paul here is talking about um, in 6.11 and 6.13 and 7.2 and 7.3, he's talking about this foundation of reciprocal love that pastors should have for churches and church people should have for their pastors. And he's saying that there should be a deep love for each other. A pastor should deeply love their church. That's the first thing. So when you're talking about a pastor's love for the church, you can go ahead and put up point A there. Um, pastors should deeply want to be loved by the church as well as pastors should deeply love their church. He's telling us in this particular text that it's absolutely necessary. And this isn't just some kind of sentimental sappiness. This is a deep, deep care. Like you, you, you're devastated. In the same way, if you're a parent, the love that you have for your child and the deep desire you want them to come to know Christ and walk out the faith, and if they don't do that, how it just absolutely devastates you. This is the same love the same reciprocal kind of love that a church should have for the pastor and the pastor should have for the church. J. Mack says this. That's John MacArthur. J. Mack says, um, this is the open and honest affection for someone. This is an intense expression of love where Paul is being open, candid, and vulnerable. And Paul is telling them there that there is plenty of room in his heart for them. This is, this is where we're commanded as pastors that we should want to love the church deeply and as well as be loved by them. Now, he's going to talk about what's going to happen here. So look at, look at what he says here. Make room in your heart. So he's starting with this foundation of love. And then he says this, which is, feels kind of like, where did that come from, Paul? Look what he says. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. And so he, he says these three things here. Uh, and you can... You can hear it where Paul is being blamed for that, but he hasn't done it. He hasn't, as a matter of fact, what the truth is, is those things that actually happened to him, and he's being blamed for the things that actually happened to him, which is insane, right? Um, but it gives us a window into when you're talking about a pastor's love for the church, what's going to happen. When you love the church, B, pastors will deal with being wrong, being f blamed for false corruption, and will, be blamed, will deal with being taken advantage of. You will have to deal th with this. It's going to happen as a pastor. People are going to wrong you, blame you for false corruption, and they're going to try to take advantage of you. And yet, still, this big command, this overarching umbrella stands, which is you need to have a deep love for the people, and you need to continually try to cultivate that they would have a deep love for you. So he's commanding them to widen their hearts through true repentance when he's saying we've not wronged anybody we've not done any of these things um, what's true is actually is that that's happened to him and then you can keep reading and he says this do not say i i, I do not say this to condemn you uh because he's already forgiven him we've already seen that in chapters one through six he's already forgiven him even though those are the very things that happened to him for i have said before here it is you are in our hearts I have a deep love for you. And then watch this. And then he says this, to die together and to live together. Now, this was actually a, a saying in the first century, but it was always the other way. We're going to live together and we're going to die together. But Paul takes it and does the Christian thing to it. We're going to die together and we're going to live together as in live in heaven forever one day. That's, that's how much I'm in with this with you. I'm going to live together. I'm going to die together. And I'm going to live together with you forever. I'm in this with you on, on the long haul, is basically what he's saying. Um, so 
I do not say this to condemn you, for I, uh, I've said that before. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness for you. So in order for me to put myself out there and command for you to repent of this sin, you, I'm being super vulnerable, and I, I don't know what you're going to do. You could just say, I don't care about you anymore, Paul, or you could repent to the Lord for what you've done, and you could return to Christ, and our relationship can be restored. I'm, great, I'm greatly bold. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our afflictions. I am overflowing with joy. So even though I have had lots of affliction, I'm still overflowing with joy. Now, we've got to realize, as he's writing this particular letter, 2 Corinthians the 4th, he already knows that they've repented because Titus has come to him and given him the report, which you've already seen, and he knows that they've repented. So as we get down to the end, um, in this little section, Titus has already told me, he's already, he's already gotten the report that you received the letter, you repented, he came and he told me, and I'm, I'm overjoyed. So as he's writing this, he knows the end. And so he's saying, um, that's why he's saying, I am overflowing with joy here. But what we can see ultimately is this, number C, uh, letter C. Pastors must deeply care for the church that God's given them. They must deeply care. So uh, when God picks the church that's going to be uh, there for the pastor, as it says in Acts 20, to care for, um, the one that Jesus purchased with his blood, you must have a deep care for them. This deep care means... uh, that you are going to act with great boldness towards them, as it says in verse 4. They're in our heart, the pastor should have the church in their hearts, and Paul's not saying that he's the hero here. Um, not at all. Christ is the hero. Even though he's been done wrong by them, he's going to continually love them. His love's not going to wane. He doesn't want to make himself the hero. He wants to help them understand that Christ is still because of the gospel. His deep love doesn't change for us. And so since Christ's deep love doesn't change for us, we in turn reciprocate that love towards other people no matter what they've done. As it says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if that's the posture that Jesus takes towards us, whenever we have wronged him completely, we were still a sinner, he was willing to come and die for us, then pastors, we take the same kind of posture towards people. They might be our enemy, but we still love them, and we still care for them. And so we need to hear the love... Hear this language that Paul is saying when we must deeply care for the church. Hear the language that Paul is using to describe the deep love, this deep abiding love that he has for the Corinthians when he says we're going to die together and we're going to live together because one day we're all going to be in heaven with Jesus. He says, I have great boldness. Think about if he's saying I have a deep care for you, church, and he says I have a great boldness, what he's saying is that Paul is willing to be bold with the truth And being bold with the truth means he's willing to risk the relationship that they have when he tells them the truth, and they have to decide what they're going to do with the truth. But you can just just not be bold, right? You can just never risk a relationship and not tell someone the truth. If they've gone off into sin, and you just love them anyway and never say a word, then you haven't helped them at all. You've done nothing to help them repent and turn to Jesus. And so he's willing to say, I'm going to tell you the truth, and it's going to be tough, and I'm going to be bold with you to do it, and I'm going to ri- there's a risk to the relationship when you do that. They can just say, well, I don't, I don't like what you're saying to me. Forget you. We're not friends anymore. And Paul's not doing that. He has great boldness, and he has great pride. He's boasting in Christ's work in them. He has comfort because he's ultimately comforted by Jesus with what happened in the hearts of the Corinthians. And now he's overflowing with joy because he already knows that they've repented because Titus has given him the report. And he's, in the end, Paul has joy because the Corinthians did not make shipwreck of their faith. They did come back to Christ. And so here we see in that first section, two through four, the great love that Pastor has, Pastor Paul has for his church. Section two, you can see it is Paul's ministry to the church. In ministry, in ministry, there's going to be ups and downs. Ministry is great sometimes, and ministry is tough, is tough sometimes. You're, you're, not all jobs are like ministry. So some jobs... The, the emotional roller coaster that you have is kind of like this. You know, it's just, I'm, this is my r- emotional roller coaster. That, it, some days, not for pastors, but other professions. You know, whatever it is, uh, it just kind of goes like this. Monday to Tuesday, things are high, things are low. But for pastors, it can be like this. You know, 
Like you, you had a phone call on Monday where someone said they led their neighbor to Christ, and then 30 minutes later, you get a phone call from someone in the church that said they're going to die of cancer. And then the next 30 minutes, you get a phone call that they just had a baby, and they're rejoicing, and they want you to rejoice with them. And then the next phone call, you got, you got someone else who is praying for their friend, and they left the faith. So like all that happens in two hours sometimes on a Monday, and you're just like... Man, this is emotional. You know, sometimes you just got to close the door and be by yourself and cry. So um, that's what we're going to see here is that pastoral ministry is different than a lot of things because uh, it has these major highs and major lows. Now, the highs are great whenever things are awesome, but the lows can be tough. Uh, And so we're going to see here, um, even for Paul, that's the case. So look at verse 5, and then we got to, we got to, we got to go back to chapter 2 to get what he's doing here. So it says, even when we came into Macedonia. Now, I know all of y'all are old, ancient geo- geographical experts from the first century. So, you, you know, like Macedonia, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm right there with him. You're probably not, right? So, for when I came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Why? Why did you have no rest, Paul? Okay, flip about three pages to the left to go to chapter 2. And if you go to chapter 2, start at verse 12. Go to verse 12. Macedonia, just think of Macedonia as like a state, like South Carolina. And then you've got a bunch of little cities in, inside of it. Troas is one of the cities in the region of Macedonia. So he went to the region of Macedonia, and when he was there, look at verse 12 tells us, When I came to Troas, that's in the region of Macedonia, to preach the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul is the one who says in 1 Corinthians, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Like, I love preaching the gospel. If I'm not preaching the gospel, I'm out of my mind. If I don't get to preach the gospel, I am losing it. That's Paul. Watch what he says here. Watch how devastated he is about what the Corinthians church did to him, that he can't even preach the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open to me in the Lord, Jesus literally said, here, Paul, go preach the gospel right there. I mean, if Jesus does that, you're like, man, this is going to be a good time, right? This is what happens. Um, My spirit was not at rest because I could not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went to Macedonia. So he's saying, uh, the reason why he wasn't rested is because Titus had gone to Corinth. Titus had delivered the severe letter. And Titus knew the info. Like Paul, he couldn't, Titus couldn't just text Paul, receive the letter, talk to you later, thumbs up. So he's like, I need to talk to Titus. Titus took the letter to Corinth. I don't know what the Corinthians did. Did the Corinthians accept my severe letter and repent and return to Jesus? Or did they say, forget you, Paul. We don't want anything. And Titus, you can go tell him we don't talk to him ever again. So he's so worried about the Corinthian church. He goes to Troas to preach. And Jesus is like, here, Paul, go preach here. And his head's so messed up because of the Corinthian church, he can't even preach the gospel. So back over, over to, five, to 7, right? 7, 5. So this is what he's saying. For even when I came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted every term because I was so nervous about what the report was going to be from Titus, I couldn't even concentrate on preaching the gospel. I couldn't even, I couldn't even concentrate on preaching the gospel. I was in such pain, fighting, and he says this, fighting without and fear within. Like I was, there were things outside of me that were making me scared, and I had these, these fears in my heart that were going on because I was so nervous about the pain that was possible here, really that had already happened with the Corinthian church and that they weren't going to repent. So pastor's ministry, back to pastor's ministry. So ministry can be tough. It can be really tough because you're in constant anguish. That's why I said, I don't think that the, The biting words hurt as much as people walking away. So point A, pastors will inevitably experience pain by the church. It's inevitable. Paul experienced deep pain from the Corinthian church. And he wanted them to repent. And he didn't know what was going to happen. And it bothered him so bad that he literally couldn't even preach the gospel. He just needed to know what's going to happen. And then I can go back to preaching the gospel. So the same Paul that says, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, was so upset about the false accusations that were launched at him that his gospel ministry was literally negatively affected because of the Corinthians. So, pastors, we can all know that eventually there will be pain. And then he says in verse 5, But we were literally afflicted at every turn. 
afflicted at every turn. Then he says, fighting without and fear within. So you can go ahead and put up B about ministry. They'll deal with afflictions at every turn. You can, sometimes it just feels like um, just got through this crisis. Oh, here's the next one. Oh, then there's three. Uh, so like fighting without and fear within. It's not always bad. We're going to see the good stuff too. I said it's Paul's, I, I told you, the title is not accurate when it says Paul's joy. It's Paul's anguish and joy. So we're getting to the joy, but just to be accurate, it's Paul's anguish as well. Fighting without, this is literally strife externally on every side. When he says fighting without, this is strife externally on every side. Constant external pressure coming from people and situations in the church. Fighting without and fears within. The intense internal anxiety and fear and constant fear of inadequacy and unknown fears going on which makes him as he says if you look in verse 6 I didn't go to 6 but look at 6 but God who comforts the downcast that word downcast uh, is really the depressed so he's saying that I, I was struggling with little depression with what was going on um, this is the word tape tepinios which means depressed that Paul is likely being so real. As I said, this is an open heart kind of like window to him. Paul was so depressed and feeling so, he's being so transparent with him that he's telling him that he was literally suffering depression from what had transpired with the Corinthian church. Just needed to know if they were going to repent. And so, um, pastors deal with afflictions literally at every turn. At every turn. So he's telling us, fighting without Fear within, and now look at the first, I mean, guys, if you haven't caught on to this yet in the Bible, this is always awesome. Look at the first two words of verse 6. That's like the Ephesians 2.4, right? But God. So whenever things are down, whenever things are tough, there's going to be this moment where the Lord shows and gives you this amazing grace, but God. Like, fighting's without, fear's within, I'm downcast and depressed, Things could not get any lower. There's afflictions at every turn. I've experienced inevitably deep pain from this church. But God. Those two words right there are the, the, the great balm given to the hearts of many pastors because they know these words show up around Pastor Paul's writings all over the place. And we need to have these words to help us in our fighting repertoire. But God. But God can bring us comfort in the worst of pains because he's the God of all comfort, as he says in 1 Corinthians 1.3. But God can remind us of our power over sin. So sin doesn't have the last say on you, but God. God has the last say over that sin because Jesus died for it. Or, but God. God can remind us of the amazing gospel and what he's done for us in Christ, like Ephesians 2.4. He overcame that we were literally Satan followers. And then chapter Ephesians 2.4, but God. So, but God is a huge huge um, act of mercy and grace for us whenever we see it in the scriptures. So, see, pastors will see and experience tremendous levels of mercy and grace in ministry because of God, when God confronts them. Verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us by the coming of Titus. So, he really needed to know the report. And he doesn't give the credit to Titus. Titus took the letter, told him to repent, read the letter, they read it, and then they said, we, we, we repent. Titus got the message. Paul couldn't even preach the gospel at Troas. He's like, I can't even preach. I just got to go find Titus. And so he goes, and, he goes and finds Titus. They meet up. Titus gives him the report. Paul's like, praise the Lord. And he doesn't give Titus any of the credit. He goes, it was all God. That's what he says right here in verse 6. But God, who comforted the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. God should be praised when Titus came and gave the report. Not only by his coming, but also the comfort with which he was comforted by you. When Titus saw that you repented, he was happy, and I got to hear the good report, and I got to see Titus happy, and all that made me happy. All that changed my depression and, and moved me away from being so downcast. Um, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul said, basically, I heard that you didn't fall away from the faith. And I can't even express to you how much comfort that brought me. It just changed, it revolutionized things for me. Which, for pastors, that's, that's, the, like, that's the bad call. Boom, we got the good call. You're back on top again. 
So pastors will see and experience tremendous levels of mercy and grace in ministry when God comforts them. The Lord will come and just change things for them in a moment. That's when God does it. But also, as we can see in this text, people can do it as well. Titus did it whenever he brought it. Now, I just tried to make sure I gave all the glory to God because that's what Paul's trying to do. But no doubt, right, when Titus came, Titus also brought that. Pastors will see and experience tremendous levels of mercy and grace by people God puts in their life. God comforted Paul, but Titus comforted Paul. When Titus came, he brought this good news. Titus was Paul's beloved son in the faith. That's what Titus 1.4 says. Um, and for sure, <clears throat> God brought comfort to Paul, but so did Titus. Just seeing his friend in the faith, seeing his son in the faith brought comfort, but also the message that Titus brought. He was the de deliverer of the severe letter. He didn't know how it was going to be received, but once it was, and Titus brought him the good news, he was overjoyed. Now, let's talk about this one for a second, right? Let's talk about this one. Point D. Pastors, oh, no, no, go back to D. We're on D. Pastors will see and experience tremendous levels of mercy by grace, by people God puts in their life. You are that person for someone. You do realize this, right? You are the Titus for someone that you can bring the good news of the gospel or you can be a friend like no other in a Christ-like way, like no other. Um, who is this in your life? Who is the Titus in your life that comforts you? And how are you the Titus in someone else's life that you can bring comfort to them? Think about that. Think, think about it for a second. Who is it that brings me comfort person-wise? And who is it that I can be a comfort to? Write, write their names down. Be intentional with your life. You only get one, and it's really short. We, we have to live these things out. Who is it that you can comfort? Who is it that God's put in your life that you can be a comfort to? Um, it's, it's an amazing gift that we get to see and be used by God to convey mercy and grace to people. Um, now, keep reading here. So we're at verse 8. For if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. So we, we're talking about that severe letter here. And Paul's like, when I, if, when I wrote that severe letter, if it made you sad, I don't regret it. <clears throat> you hear that and you're like, wow, thanks a lot. <laughs> Glad to know you love me. Um, truth spoken can seem like it hurts, but it's always the right thing to do. It's always the right thing to do. Now, Paul's not a robot. He's not an automaton. He still has feelings, and he was nervous. So after he says that, notice what he says right afterwards. Um, for if I made you grieve my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. So I wrote it, and I'm glad I did it, but I know that when you received it, it made me sad that you were hurt, but ultimately I knew that it was the best thing to do because it caused you to repent. So you can see the, the trade-off. He's still a human. He still has emotions. I don't want to hurt you with these words. I know that telling you the truth will hurt, but I know that it's the best thing for you, is what he's saying. And then he says, as, as it is, I rejoice because you, <clears throat> not because you were grieved. They were definitely grieved that they received the severe letter. But because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. So that you suffered no loss through us. Now, he's, he's glad that they grieved. Now, he's going to talk about two kinds of grief. Worldly grief and godly grief. And he's going to say, you felt godly grief and it caused you to repent. And so since you repented, I'm super, super happy. Which brings us to the last part of the ministry here. Pastors will see and experience God lead sinners to repent of sin. In ministry... Pastors are called to proclaim the Word of God in, in season and out of season. When everybody loves to hear the Bible and when everybody doesn't love to hear the Bible. As it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2-4, preach the Word in season and out. So we have to preach the Word. And it's awesome when it's in season. I mean, it's really good. Like when people like to hear the Word, that's really awesome. And, but when it's out of season, it's not. But when it's in season and people hear it and they, they repent of their sin and they return to Christ... That's what we, we get to see and experience that, and it's just amazing. I mean, I've had this opportunity. I've been give, given this, a gift by the Lord. Now, I've been saved since I was eight. Uh, and so 
Um, I'm 44, 5. 45. I'm 45 right now. Isn't that right? I'm thinking 45. So I've been, I've been saved almost most of my life, right? And so I can remember even at eight, after I became a Christian, sharing my faith pretty, pretty quickly with people, um, leading someone to Christ at like 10. Um, and since the last 35 years, the Lord has been gracious. I've been able to lead people, I don't even know how many, to Christ one-on-one over coffee and at different camps and things like that. And even preaching, having, seeing like Many people get saved through preaching. So I've seen, I don't know how many, like a lot. And it's pretty interesting um, to see, and it, it's exciting. Not that I've done it, the Lord's done it. If someone gets saved, it's not because I did anything. God opens their heart. Uh, I don't save anybody. Like, if God opens their heart, he chooses to do it. We're just the broken vessels that he ch- decides to use. But when you, as a pastor, or even just someone who's an evangelist, like whenever you share your faith with someone, and they hear it and they believe, then we get to see the Lord saves someone, it's an unbelievable gift. Pastors will see and experience this where a sinner is led to repent of sin. We'll, we'll see and experience this maybe more than most, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can do this as well, and it's a great gift to be able to, do, to happen. And I can tell you right now, after seeing, I don't know how many people get saved, if the Lord, and whenever the Lord lets me have the opportunity to lead someone else to Christ, even at 45, having done it for 35 years, Whenever it happened, it never gets old. Literally never. Every time it happens, I get the, the rush of excitement like, wow, that was awesome, just like I did whenever I was 10. It's every single time it never gets old. Almost everything in our life gets old. You know, we get something, it's so awesome, oh, this iPhone's awesome, or this whatever thing's awesome. I'm tired of it. I've had it for three weeks. It's boring now. Whenever you ha- lead someone to Christ, it literally never gets old. Every time you're just like, I got to do it again. I got to do that again. I got to do that again. Um, And so because that's the truth, because that's the case, all of us um, should deeply desire to try to lead someone to to Christ. This is what ministry is, because all of us, as we've already seen in 2 Corinthians 5, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so all of us should strive to want to do that. So that's our ministry. But we have a message. Whenever we're leading someone to Christ, we are wanting to tell them who Christ is. And so we've already kind of seen that. You, we've seen in 6 through 9 here um, where he's saying, I got to see re- sinners repent. That leads us into our message. So look at verse 9 again as it is. <clears throat> actually, verse 8. If I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I regret it for I see that my letter grieved you. But just for a while, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt godly grief that you suffered no loss through us. And you're like, okay, what's godly grief? I'm really happy you asked because Paul defines for us godly grief right there in verse 10. So if you want to, you can circle godly grief in verse 9 and draw a little arrow to verse 10 and say, here's the definition of godly grief. It's right there in verse 10. Here it is. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So that leads us to Roman numeral three, a pastor's message. We want to preach the gospel so that when people hear the gospel, they repent of their sin and they come to know Christ. So a pastor's message. Point A, pastors must preach to the church to repent of their sin. That's one of the things that pastors must preach, to repent of their sin. We see it in 8 and 9, and even as we went to verse 10, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Paul wrote a severe letter telling the church to repent of their sin. He wrote this severe letter knowing that he was risking the relationship by writing this letter, and yet Paul was willing to do it anyway because he needed to make sure he told them the truth. Where you are right now isn't right with God, and the severe letter, though it grieved them, was exactly what they needed to hear. How do you know that? Because they repented. That was exactly what they needed to hear at the moment. And the severe letter told the Corinthians that they needed to repent. And it was an act of grace that God used this letter telling them to repent. Um, Ultimately, it's God that leads people to repentance. Paul's letter didn't lead them to repentance. Romans 2.4 tells us it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so God's kindness used Paul's working of that letter to lead the Corinthians to repentance. 
And so they felt this godly grief. They felt this godly grief. So when we think of telling someone to repent, and that seems unloving that they need to tell, if someone's in sin and you say, you need to repent of that sin, John MacArthur says this, sometimes confronting sin requires going beyond what love and compassion might be comfortable with. I love you, I have compassion for you, and telling you to repent makes it feel like it's awkward for me. I'm not comfortable with that. But it's necessary, as he says, to do so because sin is a deadly killer. And the faithful pastor must not shrink from calling his people to obey the scriptures. And so pastors must preach to the church to repent. And he tells us what godly grief is. Worldly grief, as he said, produces death. Worldly one commentator says, worldly grief, worldly sorrow is the grief that comes, up, comes about someone's actions resulting in missing out on something that the world has to offer. So if they have worldly sorrow or worldly grief, they're not really truly coming to Christ. They just, they're, they're knowing, I'm going to miss out on something the world has to offer if I do that, but I probably should do that, even, but I really don't want to miss out on what the world's offering. Worldly sorrow feels bad because it wants more of the world instead of Christ. Such sorrow causes us to think about death that comes from living for self rather than for living with Christ. And so in contrast, godly grief, godly sorrow leads us to say, nothing in this world matters. All I want is Jesus. That's all I want. Just give me Jesus and everything's fine. And so the reason why we just want Jesus is because he's the one who died for us on the cross, forgives us, for, forgives us of all of our sin. And so pastors, A, must preach the church to repent of their sin. Now, keep reading with me. So in verse 11, look what Paul says. So he preached the gospel to them. He preached them to repent. He told them in that letter to repent. And then what happened? Something happened in them whenever they, they repented. Now, all of a sudden, there's this new thing created in them. Look what, how he describes it. Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief, godly grief has produced. So now they have earnestness. Um, this earnestness is going to manifest itself in a bunch of different ways. For see what this earnestness, this godly grief has produced in you, but also th what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. So because you uh, heard the, the, the call to repent and obeyed it, now you have an earnestness has been produced. This is the, the fruit of repentance. You have earnestness. That's just another way of saying sanctification is happening now. So point B, letter B, wherever we are, yeah. Pastors must preach to the church to be sanctified. Um, that's a big word. If you don't know what that means, basically it means once you come to know Christ, now that you are a Christian um, and that's settled, never going to change, uh, you're going to die one day, you know, 80 years from now. From the moment you become a Christian till the day you die, you have to become sanctified, which just means you have to become more and more like Christ and less and less like yourself. That's just what it means. And pastors preach to their church to say, you need to be sanctified. You need to every day become more and more like Jesus. That's what pastors must preach to them. And he uses this earnestness. Now you have this earnestness. That's the fruit of repentance that is letting them. This is a an earnestness is an eagerness for righteousness or an eagerness to be Christ-like. And he uses these words where he says, now you have, because of this earnestness, um, uh, this godly grief is producing you, but what eagerness to clear yourselves, indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. And what he means is this. So you're like, what does all that mean? Here's what each one of those little things mean in regard to sanctification. So this, this uh, eagerness to clear yourself, this is vindication as in, I've repented, and I want for people to know that I've repented and come to Christ. The, the sanctification in your life lets you freely talk about what Christ has done. You have that in your life. Or there's also an indignation, a gonanakatasis or something like that. This means, uh, I'm going to try it again, a gonakatis, whatever. So it, it means to feel angry, but not angry in an unholy way. It's righteous anger. I have true outrage, righteous anger towards sin now. I, now that I have earnestness and I'm being sanctified, I hate sin. Sin's not my friend anymore. I can't stand it. That's what's happening when you're being sanctified. Or fear. Now you have a reverential fear and awe of a holy God. Or now you have longing. You long and you learn and you yearn for right relationships now. Or you have zeal. You have now this new zeal 
for, for, uh, for Christ, for holiness. So look at these where he says, For see what earnestness has come to clear yourselves, indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal. And then he says, what punishment? You're like, well, that, one of those words doesn't feel like it belongs. <laughs> why does he say punishment at the end? Um, here's why. Because now that you're a Christian, um, this, this word punishment can also just be understood as justice. So what he's saying is, uh, now that I'm a Christian, I want justice to happen. Uh, truly repentant people want justice to be the norm now in their lives and for other people. So now that I'm sanctified, I want that to happen, and not just in my life, but in other people. And so he has an earnestness, as he says in verse 12, in the sight of, in the sight of God. Um, so although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one I did wrong, for the sake of the suffered, but that your earnestness might be for, uh, revealed to you in the sight of God. The number one reason he wants them to be sanctified is so that they realize before God that they should have this earnestness. Um, so he wrote the severe letter so that they would be restored, not just to Paul, but ultimately to God. That's who he wants the Corinthian church to be restored to. Lastly, last number C. You can put it up. Pastors must preach to the church to be a blessing and refresh others. So the message is repent of your sin. Pa- pastors, when we preach, repent of sin. Be more sanctified. And we also tell the people, people. When you are around each other, seek to be a blessing to each other. Seek to actually refresh each other's souls, not suck each other's souls dry from them. That's what we want to be as the church. Life givers, not life takers. And so we see that in 13b. Um, Paul says that he's comforted, and then watch this. And besides our own comfort, um, we rejoiced all the more at the joy of Titus. So when Titus was happy, Paul was happy. When Titus saw that the Corinthian church repented, Paul was happy just seeing, not just that the Corinthian church repented, but seeing Titus happy. Just seeing you happy, Titus, makes me happy. That's what he's saying. Um, Because his spirit had been, here it is, refreshed by you all. When the Corinthian church repented, they now were being a blessing, and they blessed Titus. This is what the church became after they repented. They were a refresher to people. And it says, For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. I, was, I mean, I was making y'all sound awesome. And sure enough, I was right. You did repent. Just as everything we said was true, so also boasting before Titus has proved true. I knew that you would repent, and Titus told me it. And watch what happened. Whenever, that, whenever Titus saw that, it says... And his affection, that's his love, that's the, the widening of the heart. Titus's affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you obeyed the call to repent, and how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. And so here we see that this church, now that they've Repented of their sin, and they're on the path towards sanctification. They're literally refreshing people, immediately refreshing Titus. They're being a blessing towards other people, and we're called as pastors to, to help people be life givers to other people. And Titus sees the hand of God in the Corinthian church, and it was a blessing to him. Notice, Titus' affections grew for the Corinthian church when he saw that they were going to obey God. That literally refreshed him. Their obedience refreshed him. Think about that for a second. You're obeying the Lord. As a follower of Christ, you're obeying the Lord whenever you obey the Scriptures, blesses other people. You never think of it that way. I don't have to obey God. It's just going to affect me. No, it doesn't. When you obey a God, it literally blesses other people. When people in your church body see how much you love the Lord and want to live for the Lord, it blesses them. It really blesses them. So what does this mean? What does this mean? I've got lots of applications hopefully I've made. I'm just going to make two here at the end. Two here at the end. One, you've heard in this text about what a pastor's heart should look like. His love for his people, his desire for ministry, and the cogent gospel message that he should preach. So first thing that you can do is this. Pray that your pastor elders at Remedy Church have this at all times. 
we need for you to pray for us to do that. Pray that we love you deeply and that you love us deeply. Pray that we um, desire to pers- um, persevere in ministry and pray that we never, ever stop preaching the cogent gospel message of Jesus Christ. We never shift it. We never change it. We don't candy coat it. We preach it in season and out of season. That's the first thing you can do as you heard a sermon on a pastor's heart is pray for your pastor's hearts. Me, David, Chris, Joe. Second thing is this. This time on the second thing, I want you to internalize all these things that we just talked about for yourself. How do you love people? How do you view being a minister of reconciliation? How do you preach and proclaim this gospel message? Take these things and apply them to yourself. You might not ever be a pastor, but you can love people. You might ever be a pastor, but you can desire to do the ministry of reconciliation, which we've all been given, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5. And you can proclaim the gospel message because every single one of us are supposed to obey the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and preach the gospel to the dying world. So, application one, pray for your pastors. Application two is this. Pray that you have these things present in your life. Pray that you have these things present in your life. And I want to conclude this way, um, with what godly grief that leads to repentance looks like. Martin Luther said, he's famously been quoted to say, all of the Christian life is one of repentance, which is true. All of the Christian life is one of repentance. Um, We're not repenting over and over in the way that means we're getting saved over and over. That's not what that means. You're not repenting of sin to get re-saved. That's not what Luther means. Instead, since we are already saved, justified, declared righteous, been declared uh, innocent by God because of Christ's death on the cross for us on our behalf, and we're now being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, As we're growing in holiness, as we're living out sanctification, the Holy Spirit is over and over going to press in and say, that's a sin, that's not good, that needs to stop, you shouldn't do that anymore. Like, he's not naggy like that, he actually does it in a really awesome way. Um, But, I was just preaching. So, like, when he does that, that's whenever you have to say to yourself, I need to repent. I need to repent of that. And when you repent, you don't say, so I'm going to do better. That's not where repent is. Repent is this. Christ Jesus has already completely paid the penalty for me on the cross. And this sin right now I'm in, I don't just need to do better. I need to realize it's forgiven and it has no power. You preach the gospel to yourself. Forgiven. Repentance is also reminding yourself you don't have to do anything. The law destroys. The gospel gives life. You preach the gospel to yourself, not the law. Just got to do better. That's no Jesus has forgiven me of that sin, so I am cleared. So it doesn't have any rule or reign over me anymore at all. I don't have to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Since it's forgiven because of Jesus, because all of the punishment was put on him, and now I am free. And so you, all of the life is one of repentance, and it's reminding yourself of the good news of the gospel. And when he shows us these places, we repent. And we have this ongoing posture of repenting and trusting in Christ's finished work for us on the cross. Repentance is the most gospel-centered thing we can do. It's a constant reminder of our need of God's grace, that we do not ever earn our salvation, but we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and plead the forgiveness of Christ. That's what I mean when I say all of life is one of repentance. You're not doing anything because Christ has done it all you are reminding yourself that Christ has done it all. So I want to close with this. Confession of sin would look something like this. This is from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. This is what a confession of sin prayer might sound like. I'm going to read it, and then I'm just going to pray. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We've left undone those things which we should have done, and we have not done those things which we have should have done. We have not to have done. And there is no health in us. But now, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. Spare us, Lord, which we confess our faults. Restore us, those that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grant, O most merciful Father, for your sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life. For the glory of your name, amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would continually have godly grief in our life. As Paul zeroed in on that in verse 9 and 10, Lord, that we would have that um, in our hearts ongoing forever. A deep godly grief which continually leads us to repentance, which continually reminds us of the good news of Jesus, that he died for us. And as we consider the kind of the main idea of this text, God, I pray for us all that we would grow in our love for each other, that we would literally widen our hearts and affections for other people, and that we would persevere as ministers of reconciliation for however long you give us, and that we would never stray away from the gospel message, that we would proclaim the good news of Jesus. And for those that are uh, going to be given life, it is the message of life. And for those that aren't, it is the aroma of death. But we don't change the message. We trust in you. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.